This is No Commons, and I'm your host, Janice Geary. I'm talking to experts across diverse fields about how they think the infamous idea of the tragedy of the commons can help tackle big problems of how we govern shared resources. I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Michael Hochberg today. Michael is a distinguished research director with the French National Center for Scientific Research. In addition to about three decades studying the ecology and evolution of infectious diseases and cancers, he has contributed substantially to the practice of scientific publishing. In 2019, he published the punchy and very readable book, An Editor's Guide to Writing and Publishing Science. He himself published over 100 scientific articles and was the founding editor of Ecology Letters, where he spent 11 years building a highly successful publication community, including handling over 8,000 scientific manuscripts. And his expansive CV includes the widely cited 2009 paper, The Tragedy of the Reviewer Commons. So welcome, Michael. Uh, Is there anything that you would like to add to that description or did I miss anything? It's absolutely perfect. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thanks so much for joining me. So I want to start by focusing right in on your paper. I was immediately interested in your paper because not only does it fit with the theme of this podcast, it also happens to be about another one of my academic obsessions, and that's, of course, challenges in scientific publishing. And your paper was written over a decade ago now and has stimulated quite a bit of discussion in the literature itself about the reviewer commons. So I'm hoping you can share with us the main points that you and your co-authors wanted to get across in the paper. Absolutely. So the the origin of the paper um, <clears throat> was through various discussions over a number of years with different colleagues about the difficulty in getting qualified reviewers to review manuscripts. And this is something that I had observed in 2008, 2007, 2008, after about 10 years of being editor-in-chief of Ecology Letters. Combined with the observation that the problem was getting worse. And typically, from the standpoint of an author, when they get back reviews, peer reviews of their paper, they might get back two or three reviews, but they don't realize where on the list of potential reviewers those reviewers actually came from. So they could assume that if they got three reviews back, that it was reviewers one, two, and three who were invited and all agreed to review the paper. Now, journals never will reveal what order those actual reviewers uh, came from, where they came from. So it's possible that a journal starts to invite reviewers from a list, and typically a list will be five to 10 names, suggested both by the authors and by the editor handling the manuscript. And perhaps reviewer number two will accept reviewers one and three, either don't reply or decline. And then the editor handling the manuscript goes down the list. Now, for most journals uh, with external peer review, those which which have some kind of international prestige, they'll try to obtain two to three reviews. So once one reviewer has agreed, they have to continue down the list. They cannot simply say, reviewer number two has agreed, we're at reviewer 10, no one else has agreed, what do we do? Do we desk reject the manuscript? They have to keep going. So the risk for the journal, and as it turns out for the authors themselves, is that perhaps the second reviewer who will agree is reviewer number 12, and the third reviewer number 18 or reviewer number 20. Now, it was uncommon in my experience to go down as far as 20 invites to get 
two or three reviewers, but it was equally very uncommon that the first three reviewers who would be invited would all agree. Now, in just sharing these observations with the colleagues who co-authored this 2009 paper, they really were very much of the same opinion. And we decided to put our notes together and to try to discover what might be causing this, what is the pattern, what might be causing it, and what could be the solutions for the future. And so that's really the basis of this article. To extend that and to get to the title, why we chose the reviewer uh, comments and the tragedy, what we observed both as editors and as scientists were that in basically having to invite increasing numbers of reviewers to potentially review a paper that perhaps we were exhausting the reviewer database. And what we observed and what is really the key message of the paper is that a given journal in having its corral of potential reviewers and the number of potential reviewers at Ecology Letters at the time, I believe was 4,000 our, in our database, we could manage our own reviewers and not really have a problem of exhausting this reviewer database and come up with what we believed were very competent and well-executed reviews on the papers that we were judging. Now, the problem and where the tragedy comes in is that all journals in our area, that is ecology and evolutionary biology, are looking at this, basically the same reviewer database. They don't share the reviewer names, but they're inviting, tend to invite the same people. So given that in our database of 4,000, we were perhaps inviting 400, the top 400 quality reviewers over and over again, and other journals are likely to do, be doing the same thing, that's where the tragedy comes in. It's the non-communication between journals inviting the same reviewers over and over again, and the reviewers themselves who are getting 5, 10, 15, 20 or more solicitations per year finally give up and either become very, very choosy in which journals to review for or simply slam the door and decide not to review any longer. So that's the basis of the paper and of the tragedy. Wow, that's a really fantastic summary. Um, so just to kind of put it into commons language, it sounds like the, the shared resource that you identified was the pool of reviewers for ecology and evolutionary biology papers. And uh, it was you know being depleted and not being managed very effectively. So you went to the, the literature on how to effectively manage these shared resources to try to bring in an analogy that would help describe the problem. That's right. So we want to identify where you know, where the problem actually stems from. So there is, as I said, the problem of journals basically living in their own universes and not communicating with one another, unless they're part of the same corral of journals from the same publisher. Sometimes that does happen. But by and large, journals are independent entities and they jealously guard their, their prize reviewers. But if you were to look at those reviewer lists, you would see that most of those, the names are the same people. So therein lies the tragedy is that this non-communication and the over-exploitation of the reviewer database. Now, it should be said that part of this resides in the gradual feeling uh, amongst reviewers who are, who are themselves career scientists that 
perhaps review um, doesn't serve the real purpose that it's intended to serve. And that's a big problem. And what this comes down to is that in order to review a paper and to spend the time, which uh, estimates are roughly four hours, about four hours on average uh, to read and to review a paper, that's time taken away from research. And the reviewers are not recompensed in any way. That, that is changing a little bit, but not recompensed. And so with the feeling that, yes, I'm busy with my science, I'm, I simply don't have the time to even do that, others perhaps will review this paper. I'm going to just press the decline button and hope that others, perhaps other names that I suggest to the editors, will review the paper um, instead of me. So that contributes to the tragedy. And that's how we end up, how, how editors end up going further and further down their list of preferred reviewers and down through people who are competent scientists, surely, but not those who would be chosen as being the real top experts in the field. And so what this results in is our reviews that are perhaps reviews by reviewers that are perhaps um, less in tune with the, with the needs of the specificities of the manuscript in question. I really want to dig into that idea about the expertise of the reviewers, but I want to just take a little step back to um, what you're talking about and the competition between journals. And I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit about what those um, selfish interests are between the journals who are essentially competing for the resources of reviewer time. And I'm also wondering how the advance of open access might contribute to that dynamic. The journal, uh, journal's view, and this was shared with my collaborators on this paper and with other journal editors who I've spoken to, they view reviewers and the reviewer data database as their prime resource. They do rely, of course, on editorial boards, but really the, the basic matter from which they can evaluate and judge a paper, but also improve upon, ask the others to improve upon their paper, comes from the quality of the reviewers. In journals wanting to foster their own image of quality and perhaps leadership in their areas, they're going to want the best, highest quality reviews possible. So this is sort of the basis of the competition. Now, what should happen if fewer than three reviews, for example, are received, or if one of the reviews is of low, uh, considerably lower quality than the others, this puts the onus on the editor who's handling the manuscript to weigh in and try to arbitrate what is going on. Editorial boards, just like reviewers, are typically not compensated for their work. Eventually, editors could put that on their CV, but the question is then how much is it worth in terms of, of time of contribution, effort of contribution, to deal with papers that are adequately reviewed? And so this becomes a related problem to the tragedy, and that is that the editors could simply use the reviews to vote for acceptance or rejection of a paper. And if the reviews are adequate, then simply two positive reviews and one negative re review might result in major revisions, whereas an editor could have a threshold of two very negative reviews and one positive review to consider rejection. 
And that sort of alleviates this load, potentially alleviates the load on the editor, the handling editor, to really weigh in him or herself. And so that becomes another problem of the tragedy. And that is the extent to which editors take the responsibility of weighing in on manuscripts that are well-reviewed, but not as well-reviewed as they could be. Please remind me of the second part of your question. Yeah, just talking more about uh, the role that, I guess, more junior scientists like postdocs or early career researchers could have in um, providing competent reviews, but maybe not have the same experience uh, of providing good reviews to improve manuscripts. And like, what is their role in all of this? Yes. So that's one of the proposed solutions to that could contribute to alleviating the tragedy. And that is rather than invite those reviewers who have lots of review experience and have marked the points with a journal of submitting their reviews on time and really weighing in the way they're expected to do so, to invite younger reviewers, postdocs, and PhD students. And there, the possibility is that their supervisor could possibly, in a sense, chaperone the reviews and either contribute with the, the younger person to give them the experience and the, the learning experience of, of reviewing for the first time so they can come on board as part of the scientific community that contributes to reviews. And, it's, and doing that not only contributes to the future of how science is judged, but it, it's also much more useful for a, a PhD or a postdoc to be able to put on their CV that they are reviewed for such and such a journal for their career prospects. So in those cases, it's, it's win-win. And uh, of course, your background is in ecology. So um, this wasn't the first paper that you've co-authored that referenced Garrett Hardin's 1968 paper. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what made you want to use that concept to dig deeper, deeper into this problem and some of the uh, controversies around this paper in the literature and how that might impact the application of that paper in contemporary work. Right. So the, the Hardin paper is interesting in its impact on many different disciplines. And Hardin himself argued this as really sort of a special condition where, for example, there's a pasture and farmers put their cattle or their sheep out to graze. And as the resource that is grass declines, that they might be tempted to put more and more of their sheep or cows out to graze. And this could contribute to a spinning down, in a sense, of the availability of grass for the, for the, for the grazers and mean that the, the commons, in a sense, uh, collapses. But this relates to a much more general problem of the commons and, their, and including the reviewers' commons, and that is when there's not oversight or communication between users problem of over-exploitation potentially occurs. And so we see this really across uh, many different uh, disciplines. This could be argued uh, to be something in, in biology um, that's of concern in the case of cancer, where cancer, when it becomes malignant, runs through a body and ultimately, if not treated, could kill its host. Other examples being pandemics, COVID, for example. As the virus spreads through a population, it basically goes through and infects those 
susceptible hosts uh, that are available, but eventually will go past the herd immunity threshold and then go into decline and potentially extinguish itself. So this is sort of the same idea of a limited resource and over-exploitation. This is also seen in antibiotic use and antibiotic resistance. That is, it's my personal concern to stay healthy. And should I get sick, potentially take antibiotics. And my doctor and myself are not necessarily looking around to see whether or not others are exploiting the same antibiotic molecules. And this potentially, on a population level, could lead to the selection for resistant uh, microbes and the lack of eff efficacy of those antibiotics due to antibiotic resistance. This also occurs in other areas uh, uh, concerning humans. For example, automobile traffic could be viewed as a sort of tragedy of the commons. That is, we want to drive our cars to the local supermarket. And at peak hours, others want to do the same, but they're not necessarily looking on their computers at any kind of traffic conditions to decide whether or not to go. And so that could be another example of a tragedy-like effect. So we see the tragedy in any cases where there's, there's a common resource or a common arena and too many individuals, they're trying to use it and not communicating uh, in their use. I think that last thing you said about not communicating uh, is really, for me, at the core of the issue. And I think that one of the controversies that I've observed in a lot of the literature after Garrett Hardin's paper was he kind of neglected to mention that this is the tragedy is inevitable when people don't talk to each other, but humans actually are able to talk to each other in a lot of situations. Um, and of course, when you talk about traffic, I just imagine myself when I sit in traffic and how I'm like, oh, why is there so much traffic without acknowledging that I am indeed traffic myself? Right. So I, I think the awareness of the burden that we put on the system is a, a big part of that as well. Uh, and thinking about the ability to communicate, I look at the um, the competing interests in the reviewer commons, and you spoke about um, two in particular in your paper. And one is the, the desire of authors to submit their papers to the, the highest impact possible journal for the best you know, clout in their field without maybe considering frequent rejections and how that overburdens the system. And you also um, have been talking about the, the journal's incentives to try to get the best reviewers as well. So what are some communication avenues that you think could help solve the the problems around those two groups overtaxing the reviewer commons. Yeah, so that, that's really a very good point. So it, it relates to one of the drivers of tragedies, and that is freedom, right? So freedom is precious, but individual freedoms, when, uh, when they're uh, not under some for form of self-control or control from above, which we, we prefer not to happen, that is regulation, can result in population effects that end up coming back and hurting the individuals. So in the short term, my freedoms might benefit me, but if through time, if enough individuals are taking these same freedoms, then eventually this will come back to hurt them and hurt general users in the population. Now, in the case of journals, it's difficult to see because our, at the moment, we're perfectly free as scientists to choose what journal we, we want to submit to. And this does result 
in an overabundance of papers that are received by journals. And one of the main mechanisms for journals to maintain their own database is to desk project manuscripts. Now, early in my career, many decades ago, every manuscript that I submitted until the mid-1990s, I would say, went out for peer review. And starting in the mid and late 1990s, we were seeing journals that were starting, that were increasingly rejecting without review. And this would typically occur within a few days or a week. And one would get usually a form letter uh, saying, uh, due to page restrictions, um, we're not able to consider your article, your, your manuscript any further. And they might give a couple of reasons for that. But generally, these were, were form letters simply because, at least at the top journals, the, the mass of manuscripts that they were, were receiving. Now, when I left Ecology Letters in 2008, our desk rejection rate was about 60%. And we did not target that. We didn't decide uh, we're going to reject 60% of manuscripts. It was our feeling, together with the editorial board, that there had to be a certain scientific and interest level for a paper to go out for review. And it just so happened that over a span of several years when we did actually record this data, that the desk rejection rate was about 60%. Now in the top journals, I'm thinking of journals like Science and Nature, desk rejection rates are probably on the order of 70, 80, 90%. I don't actually have those numbers, but they simply get so many manuscripts that they can't possibly arbitrate um, that they're forced to do this. And were they to do, you know, some could argue they should be doing their service and sending these out for review because you never know, maybe some of these papers that are desk rejected would have survived peer review at the journal. The problem for the journal is that if they make this kind of decision, then what they're dealing with is the overexploitation of their own reviewer database and also the view of some of the reviewers that they invite receiving a paper that's, let's say, perhaps subpar, a good paper, but subpar for that journal, of why did the journal send it to me? They're wasting my time. This paper would never survive peer review anywhere. So this is really much the basis for desk rejection. It's an easy way to manage the reviewer database at journals. And it's also a fast turnaround for authors so they can go to another journal. So this kind of, let me just finish with this. This relates to this problem of freedom. So the from the author's standpoint, they probably want to shoot for a journal that's slightly or perhaps much higher than they believe their paper merits. There might be a lottery involved, right? So there is a chance effect. It depends on the reviewers that get a paper to some extent. So why not try for a journal that's a bit above or perhaps way above what the paper merits and see what happens? And if it's desk rejected, it takes a week or two, just move on to the next journal. So it's this freedom on the part of authors and the reaction of, of editors, of editorial boards that sort of drives this, this process and the the fact that the top journals, the high, most highly solicited journals are, are desk rejecting certainly the majority, if not uh, you know, almost the totality of the manuscripts that they're receiving. 
One of my favorite stories about a desk rejection was from a colleague of mine who got the rejection email before she got the email confirming her paper had been submitted. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that was nature or science. It was one of the, the big ones. Um, and I, if I recall reading in the introduction to your um, writing guidebook that you published uh, two years ago, um, you spoke about how authors are often, even if it's a rejection, grateful to receive it quickly. And I related very much to that because, um, you know, journals sitting on papers for a long period of time is a really difficult thing. So uh, it, it sounds like just doing things efficiently is something that authors really appreciate as well. Yes. So. And I do have, there's, there's an interesting point with this. And that is that when ecology letters um, started in 1998, the norm for reviewing, for receiving reviews was about six months. So quick would have been three months and typical would have been six to nine months. And the problem is that receiving a revision decision letter after six or nine months is certainly, one could argue, better than receiving a rejection notice. But by the time that's received, the authors have pretty, not completely, but pretty much forgotten about their paper. So they have to revisit this and kind of get back into the, into the stream of what they were doing six months or nine months back. So that, that's a problem. And that's one of the forces for having more responsibility on the part of journals to actually try to push reviewers as best they can to review papers on time and setting limits that are typically most most journals would set limits nowadays of two to four weeks hoping to get the review back in let's say four or six weeks maximum one thing that you um wrote about in the paper is something that i would describe as the least publishable unit and i wonder if you can touch on that issue of the incentives that are put on researchers to kind of create as many papers as possible with one idea versus trying to create the best quality papers that they can get. And also, I'm wondering from your perspective as, you know, both a very accomplished scientist and uh, an accomplished editor, what could be the communication between journals and the academic community in general to prevent this, you know, quantity over quality issue? Yes. So that's sometimes referred to as salami slicing, where um, the contents of a study might be judged to merit more than one manuscript. Um, it's often a difficult problem. So in doing work, especially scientific work during a PhD, where many projects or sub-projects might be involved, some things work better than others. And it's always difficult for a student to, having spent months or possibly years on parts of his or her project, to see that it doesn't stand alone as a manuscript. And it does relate to other parts of the dissertation, but not very comfortably. So the question is whether or not to try to write that up as a single study or perhaps divide it into two separate studies. So a strong study and one which is a bit weaker. Now the temptation to divide it up comes from what's been called the evaluation culture. And that is more manuscripts, or I should say more articles in more journals gives a student a better chance of continuing on in their career. And so there's, there's an impetus to trying to create more units, that is more manuscripts, and perhaps with some of them being very small units, you know, what we sometimes refer to as notes. So that can be a problem. But on, 
the other side, if, for example, there were two studies, related studies from a dissertation that could be divided into two separate manuscripts, and the decision were, after all, let they could be stronger as a single manuscript, well, that's not necessarily the case. And it could be that reviewers would see the second part of this one manuscript sort of hanging off the end and not relating clearly to the strong part of the manuscript. And should it get through review and be published, it could end up, in some cases, penalizing the student or the researcher in the future because the manuscript will be longer, harder to read, and will have these elements that really don't hang on very well together. So the third alternative, the alternative one is keep it together. Alternative two is publish it separately. Alternative three is only publish the strong part and perhaps not publish the weak part. So this is part of the dilemma or rather trilemma that students and researchers in general have to deal with of how they put together uh, parts of a study. I love the um, reference to the quote evaluation culture. And I've certainly, I mean, I'm a postdoc right now. So these issues are very near and dear to my own career at the moment and how I advance. And uh, I, I recall one journal publishing seminar I went to in my PhD and the two, you know, very uh, established researchers were speaking about how to get published and they were talking about who's going to be evaluating your CV and what kind of metrics they're looking for. And I put up my hand and I asked, well, at what point is someone going to read my manuscripts and judge them for the quality? And the two presenters just laughed and <laughs> because that it's, it's accounting culture. It's not a, it's not a look at your work necessarily. And I've, you know, I've sat on, as a student representative on hiring committees and I know that you get so many applications and people are overtaxed. I mean, it's not just reviewing that uh, manuscripts that overtaxes scientists outside of their own work. It's also all these other committees and um, service commitments that they have. So everyone's always looking for these, these quick heuristics, I guess, in order to yes. lower their, their workload. Um, and just one more uh, quip. Um, I did my PhD studying how scientists share data. So I, I interviewed a lot of researchers. And one of my favorite quotes that stuck with me was a researcher um, talking about these incentives and how he was saying that deans can't read, but they can count. And that's <laughs> kind of how he thought about how he was evaluated with this evaluation culture as well. Yes. yes so that's, I agree. That's, it's really, it's um, something that's very difficult to break. And many initiatives have, and researchers are, have written about this and trying to make decisions that would influence policy. And this does, as you said, come down to the committees and the, the way that committees are willing to spend the time on judging the science in the manuscripts and perhaps less so the numbers associated with the manuscripts. So numbers and names, right? Names of co-authors, names of journals. The big problem there is that science by and large arguably is becoming more and more specialized and more and in some respects more and more technical and this means that on a committee of 10 people for example who are experts from a diverse array of let's say population ecologists there could be submissions um, that none of them really feel comfortable in handling um, and others that all, other all, all of them would be feel comfortable in handling and so the idea of numbers, and should I say independent numbers, uh, H index of researchers, number of citations, and so forth, gives sort of an independent 
measure of something, right? Of quality, um, impact, and so forth. And it's also, as you said, an easy way to make these judgments. And it's one where the actual science, which we want to judge, is subtracted a bit, but relates to the ability of a committee to equally judge the science from different papers. So it's not as if science is in just a single dimension from being good to bad, but rather there's interest of the question, uh, constraints that the scientists had, the way the discussion of the results is presented and so forth, which really makes it almost like comparing apples and oranges sometimes. And so I don't think that we're going to see these numbers go away for sure. But the idea that we rely too heavily on numbers, I think is shared by a lot of, a lot of scientists. I share it as well. So it's been over a decade now since you've published this paper, and I'm wondering if anything has gotten better or worse, or what are your views now about how the reviewer commons is being managed? Yes, so this is an area that's moving very quickly. I'm certainly quickly in the minds of scientists, and the I think the feeling shared by many of that peer review somehow has to prove itself as being something that's worthy to continue. So that would be an extreme, is that some scientists that wanted to completely do away with peer review and others that are disgruntled, especially in cases where they submit a manuscript, it goes out for review, it comes back with review reviews where one or more is really off base. So the question is, what could be done about this? What could be done to get prize reviewers, good reviewers, competent reviewers, on-time reviewers for manuscripts so that the commons is preserved and the really the reason for review is maintained. Now, there have been a number of initiatives. One is open review, and these all relate to sort of the compensation that reviewers get. So going back to the beginning of, of the podcast, what tells me that I should be altruistic and spend my time to review other papers. Well, obviously the altruism is that I'm hoping that the others will do the same for me. But the question is, is there any kind of added impetus that will get these prize reviewers that tend to be solicited more or potentially over-solicited to contribute more to the commons? So one possibility is that reviews are published. That is, it's really very much in the direction of open science. And that the reviews in being published mean that the reviewers could be anonymous or they could actually sign the reviews. In cases where they sign the reviews, they could get a digital object identifier that is a DOI and the review would be potentially citable. So that is really a big, potentially a big payback. And the reason for that is that all of us as reviewers have had the experience of putting a lot of time into a review and feeling that there was so much time and there was actually so much that went to the review that actually our review qualified once this paper was published as being a condition for co-authorship, right? So it's possible that in doing my review, if I've, I've actually contributed intellectually more to a paper than some of the authors on the paper. I don't doubt that one bit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and this, and, but this is also, in a sense, in a, in a, another impediment that contributes to the tragedy that we didn't actually write, mention in our 2008, 2009 paper. 
And that is that, am I going to spend four hours on this paper and just gloss over and I'll give it a read and I'll look for the major things that stand out, but I'm not going to really look through the data and the analysis and do a thorough job of this because first of all, that was the author's work and I shouldn't be expected to do that. But also I'm not getting anything out of this and I might be contributing more intellectually to the final product, as I said, than some of the authors themselves. So this is another way in which this could put a break on the investment in peer reviewing. Now, the idea of open review and as part of open science could be a wonderful thing here because for those authors who are willing to sign and those journals willing to be part of this, and there are now several journals that, that do this, the proof would be there, right? So the a clearly written review with recommendations, major comments, minor comments could potentially could be a, without a problem on a CV and could actually turn out to be a paper in itself, a note in itself um, that's cited. So that's, I think, an important way in which the commons issue could be partially delayed. The problem there is that in just in general, in signing a review, not being anonymous, the reviewer opens him or herself up to potential critique from the authors themselves. By, by critique, I mean, even if a paper is accepted and there are some perhaps poorly worded comments in an author's review, the author signs a review, one simply doesn't know what the authors will think of that. And they see the, the person's name who signs a review and the, the reviewer wants to be honest and be transparent. Um, but really doesn't know what might be in it for him or her later on. And this could be really a big problem for younger career scientists. Uh, it, it is a risk. It's probably not, in general, not a big risk. And it does force the reviewer to be much more careful in how the review is worded if they were to sign it, and certainly if it were to go online, signed. So I think in the future of open reviews as part of open science, that this responsibility that comes with signing a review and the clarity that comes with signing a review and being broadcasted to the whole community will mean will turn out to be better for reviewing because it will force reviewers, uh, so to speak, um, to be more responsible. I think that's a really great reminder of how these are, you know, professional relationships, and it's so important to think about respect as a reciprocal um, reciprocal thing where it's between the author and the reviewers. And I personally, I love open reviews. I love reading them. I agree that they're a phenomenal contribution. And uh, when they're available, I love digging into them. And I think it would be fantastic if there was a way to give um, reviewers credit for that work as well. So that was kind of the list of things that I was interested in talking um, to you about. But before we wrap up, is there anything else that you wanted to share about the paper or thoughts about the tragedy of the commons in general that you didn't have a chance to say yet? One aspect that we didn't touch upon that is important is the emergence of, of preprints. And in a recent, I think it's two or three years old now, but relatively recent analysis by Vincent Rivière, who is based in Quebec in Canada, he estimated from the archive and biology papers published in the archive that only, only so to speak, 75% of those papers eventually were published in, in a so-called classical journal. So that some papers were just left 
as preprints, then there could be different reasons for that. One might be that the paper simply was rejected from one journal after another. Um, or it could be that the uh, authors lost interest and decided that the archive as a preprint was fine for their objectives in, in um, uh, basically publishing the science. But the question that preprint servers open up more generally, and that is in terms of, of peer review, in their papers not being peer reviewed, is to what extent will they serve as alternatives pushing this 25% that are never published in journals, perhaps the higher numbers, and meaning that the preprint server is the last resting place for many more papers. And there's an initiative, and you might have heard of this, called Peer Community In, PCI. And Peer Community In has several sub-disciplines, for example, Peer Community In Evolutionary Biology, that seeks to peer review papers, I should say preprints, um, on the bioarchive or on the archive. And the interest here is that the authors then could get a, a rubber stamp once the paper is revised and okayed, so to speak, by the reviewers to just leave it there. And so they curtail all of this stuff that's, that relates to the costs of publication, um, going through additional peer review, uh, the competition to get published in, in the biggest journals, and that pa the papers that end up living on preprint servers and have this stamp of approval basically survive on their own legs, right? And if the science there is good, it'll be judged as good and not so much by the name of the journal and so forth. And so this, I think, it's very much a grassroots idea, a bottom-up idea, uh, but this could be a future for how the commons issue and the interest of and the essential nature of peer review is to correcting um, and improving science and sort of has this double advantage of curtailing the whole evaluation culture, big name journal part of it, the costs associated with that, and makes it more of a scientist-controlled enterprise. That's fantastic. And I actually had not heard of that. And when, you know, whenever I get into my rants about the problems with uh, scientific publishing and, and predatory practices, and I would argue a lot of publishing is predatory, whether or not it's open access. Um, yes. But I've said, as, as long as something's peer reviewed, it's peer reviewed science. It doesn't matter where it gets put. So yes. I And actually, so I do have a, a final comment relating to the, yeah, this evaluation culture. And, and one of the problems with what we all want, which is open science, or all, all of us want that. And that entails, by and large, what are called APCs, these publication charges. And the problem being with publication charges that are carried by the author and usually carried by funders, uh, funding agencies um, uh, through grants uh, to the authors, is that publishers have the impetus based upon the their prestige and the, their journal impact factor to raise their prices or determine their prices of publishing in their journals based upon that. And what this could, we could imagine that this could create a world, and this is pushing things a bit far, but it's not 
inconceivable of have and have nots, where those excellent scientists that by chance or by skill are able to publish in the top journals and cover these charges. And then because of the publications in these big journals get more grant money, which therefore can feed in and provides a resource for them to publish more and more in these journals, this could create a world, again, exaggerating a bit of have and have nots, that it's the publication in these high impact factor journals that leads to more grant money, more grant money can pay for the articles to publish in the high impact journals. Yeah, I don't think that's as far off as um, either one of us would want that to be. <laughs> yes, but there there is some evidence of a coral of correlations between impact factors and the cost of publishing journals. And I won't mention the journal name, but there was, I believe it was three or four years ago, a webpage that went up to the effect that the pricing in the journal could reflect the changes in the impact factor of the journal. Now that webpage was taken down, but a record of it is still available. So if one searches, one can find this. So publishers have this in mind. They have this in mind. I don't want to be too cynical about this, but this is the only reason why they're in the publication business. And that's not true. But there is this danger that through the evaluation culture and this positive feedback loop of publishing the big journals and getting more grant money that provide the funds for publishing in such journals, that we could be, as scientists, uh, doing a disservice to ourselves, doing a disservice to the community. Absolutely. Um, That's a really fantastic note to end on. Um, But before I actually end, I'm wondering if if you're working on anything right now that the listeners might be interested in. Yes. So I've started a, a book project, which is very much based upon these different examples that I mentioned earlier. For example, epidemics, cancer, antibiotic resistance, peer review, and the generality of these commons issues and the tragedy of the commons as one type of commons issue to develop into into a book of how we interact in the commons, um, how freedom can lead to problems, how grassroots initiatives uh, can solve some of these problems and how in some cases top-down regulation or some degree of top-down regulation could be necessary in dealing with these problems. That sounds fantastic. Uh, When can we expect to see that out? Um, In the next decade. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So it's an ongoing major project. (laughs) Yeah. So so I'm I'm expecting three to five years. Okay, great. Well, I'll definitely have my eyes open for that. And thank you so much for joining me today. It was a real pleasure to chat about all of these issues and hear your perspectives. Pleasure for me too. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. If you'd like to learn more, you can find links to articles and other things we mentioned in the podcast at nocommons.ca. You can also find the show on Twitter at at nocommons. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or suggest a paper to feature, drop me a note on our website contact page. And of course, please consider subscribing to No Commons wherever you get your podcasts. Mm-hmm.